0: This affected the way that people parented. This affected the way that people function in their day-to-day lives. They might not even know why they do the certain things they do. They might not know why they why they hide their kids. They might not know why they're like scared. But this is this is something that remains today. It doesn't just go away because the school's gone.
1: You are listening to Fruitless, a podcast hosted by me, Josiah Sutton. This is episode 21, Indian Country in Present Tense, featuring Amelia Schaefer, where we discuss indigenous affairs in South Dakota. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fruitless. I am uh, joined today by Amelia Schaefer, Indigenous Affairs Reporter for Indian Country Today and Rapid City Journal in South Dakota, and uh, also an old college friend of mine. So hello, Amelia.
0: Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: Um, do you want to kind of introduce yourself a little bit to people here if they don't know uh, your work or anything?
0: Yeah. So I am a descendant of the Brothertown Indian Nation, which is based in Wisconsin, originally from the East Coast. Um, My dad is mixed native and my mom is Irish and German. I look a lot like a little German girl. So that's always kind of a joke (laughs) that I like to make. Um, But yes, so I am not enrolled. I am a descendant because their roles have been closed while they fight for federal recognition to get it back because they were federally recognized. It's a whole thing. Gotcha. (laughs) Lots of lore. But um, I went to college with Josiah. Um, At Simpson, Mm -hmm. I majored in psych and multimedia journalism. Then I went to Northwestern University of Medill for a year for my accelerated master's in investigative journalism. And then I ended up in Rapid City, South Dakota, where I am now. So that's my story.
1: Awesome. Um, I'm going to assume general ignorance on indigenous issues here, uh, you know, partially because that's the case for myself, and then partially because. Um, you know, in case somebody is listening to this who doesn't know anything about this, I think it'd be good to just like fill in any gaps or whatever. So, uh, real quick, I, I guess let's kind of start with the basics because you you're reporting on Pine Ridge Reservation uh, generally. Uh, for for someone you know who's not from South Dakota, not from that area at all, like like what what is Pine Ridge Reservation?
0: Yeah, so Pine Ridge is the home of the Oglala Lakota, um, formerly known as the Oglala Sioux Tribe. The uh, Oglala, along with the other bands of the Lakota Nation, are originally from the Black Hills, which I'm sure a lot of people may have heard about from movies, infamous movies like Dances with Wolves, things like that. Um, Pine Ridge is one of the largest reservations in the United States. It's a little over 3 million acres. And it is in the southwestern part of South Dakota with a little tiny bit in Nebraska, which is white clay, which some people may have also heard of. It's okay. um, there's like there's about forty five thousand, fifty thousand somewhere in there enrolled members, and they can live anywhere around the globe. You don't just have to live in Pine Ridge anymore. Um, and then there's somewhere this number is contested. On the census, there's twenty thousand people approximately that live on Pine Ridge. But you'll hear a lot of different numbers if you are in South Dakota or you talk to people. Um, I will also point out that a majority of Native people do not live on their respective reservations, or some Native tribes do not have reservations. So about eighty percent of Native people don't live on the reservation; they live off. A lot of people live here in Rapid. There's a very large Lakota community, but um, the Lakota they're pretty they're pretty famous for being a very powerful, very determined. Um, tribal nation. If some people know of AIM American Indian movement in the seventies, that's where the wounded knee um, I'm blanking on the word, the wounded knee occupation took place in the Uh, Um, seventies. Leonard Pelletier Leonard is not from Pine Ridge, but that is where the killing of the two FBI agents took place. He's actually turtle mountain band of uh, Ojibwe up in North Dakota um, but I mean, everything kind of exploded on Pine Ridge in the Wounded Knee District, um, which is also a historic site—the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre, where mm-hmm. um, I believe 300 Oglala Lakota and also Hunkpapa Lakota, different different types of Lakota from around the uh, Black Hills area, were massacred by the United States um, in the late 1800s, and. So that's that's something that people may have also heard of Pine Ridge from. It's it's a very historic location. Um it's also it's one of the if not the poorest reservation in the United States. The census says that the uh, the approximate family income is about $10,000 per family, which is extremely yeah, low. Right. I mean Most of the U.S. is much, much higher than that. Um, There's higher rates of diabetes, other illnesses, but there's also a very rich culture. There's a very powerful people still to this day. I mean, you've got large players today that came from the Oglala Lakota, such as Nick Tilson of the Indian Collective. Um, mm-hmm. Also, it's, it's just a very historic location, and it's very beautiful. I mean, every time I go there, I really love just talking with the people that I'm interviewing. Everyone is super funny, everyone is super nice. I've honestly never had a bad experience there, but there is a lot of prejudice towards Pine Ridge, especially in Rapid City, um, which mm-hmm. is an issue that you see today.
1: Well um you know and you, you talked you know briefly about you know uh enrollment uh and kind of just in general the kind of um tribal nations uh for you know a- anyone who doesn't fully understand how this works like what um h- how does like tribal government work within the context of the u s now um to the you know to like like um does the reservation have its own independent government kinda of, kind of how does that function
0: yeah. That's- questions so basically um the each reservation or not reservation but each tribal government is ideally a sovereign nation of course the united states Mm -hmm. has put limits on what that means but this basically means they have their own government they have their own um i'm sorry my cat is yelling so i'll repeat that so you can cut it out (laughs) they have their own form of membership or people prefer citizenship rather than membership because membership is more Mm. like a club but some tribes, especially Plains tribes, still utilize blood quantum, which is percentage of Indian blood or formerly, I believe, certificate of degree of Indian blood. Um, that's kind of an archaic concept that was used to track people. Um, and then today, mm-hmm. a lot of tribes such as Brothertown, go by... Um, Linear lineal descent. So, if you can trace an ancestor back to their base role or an earlier role, you can be a citizen. And blood quantum is kind of phasing out, but it is something that's um, hotly contested in Indian country. There are a lot of people who still stick by it, there are a lot of people who feel strongly about it. So, it's just a really complex topic. But to get back to the main question, each tribe has its own government, each tribe has its own form of governing, and there's different variations of that. Um like as a tidbit there was um and this is something I'm still trying to wrap my head around IRA tribes which in the 1940s I believe all tribes had to restructure their governments and some elected to be IRA some elected not to be and that gives them different powers there's also some tribes mm-hmm. have their own independent law enforcement that receives funding from the Bureau of Indian Affairs through the Department of the Interior and some have a completely dependent police department on the Bureau of Indian Affairs so South Dakota has nine native reservations within it. Um, Most are Lakota, some are Dakota, and some are Nakota. Those are all part of- people would- people would commonly refer to as the Great Sioux Nation. Sioux is kind of- Sioux is kind of an interesting term, so people out here mostly call themselves the Oceti Sakowin, which is the, um, seven council bands. It's- it's what they prefer to go by at, um. And that is who is home or who is indigenous to this region of the Plains, the Northern Plains and parts of Minnesota, um, even parts of Iowa. So Mm -hmm. each of those, each of those nine tribes within the state of South Dakota have their own governments and their own BIA law enforcement factions. So Crow Creek, which I've reported on, they are completely dependent on the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, for their law enforcement Well, Mm. um, Pine Ridge, the home of the Oglala Lakota is they have their own tribal law enforcement that receives funding from the BIA, but then what makes it a little more complicated, there are also BIA agents who have different departments. There's one in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and there's many just scattered about, but there's different agents that just go around and do stuff. So if you come out here, you may see BIA vehicles or there's tech, like there's typically a BIA I don't want to call it a station. I can't think of the name, but headquarters headquarters on each reservation. And some are really small. Crow Creek's pretty small as a reservation, but Pine Ridge is pretty big. And then Standing Rock and uh, Cheyenne River are pretty sizable too. Flandreau, which is in the Eastern part of the state is super, super small.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I I think, um, yeah, like, like understanding the whole like government within the u.s you know like a, a state within a state kind of thing is i i think um i don't know just just really interesting and, and something that um i i feel a lot of people don't quite understand i don't a fully
0: understand it myself um i'm getting better at it but it's just south dakota is such a It's so different. I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in a really small town about two hours south of Minneapolis. It's so Mm -hmm. different from what I've grown up with. And it's even out here is a lot more different from the more different a lot. It's different compared to even the East Coast or the Great Lakes region where I was in Chicago. I was part of the um, native community in Chicago. I absolutely loved it. Um, I have some Mm -hmm. I made some of my best friends there. But it's just everywhere is different. I mean, I've been to... Reservations in Oklahoma, Wisconsin, mini Minnesota, South Dakota, now North Dakota, Iowa. Well, Iowa's not really a reservation. The Meskwaki's a settlement, um, which is different too. It's just everywhere is different, and it's really complicated. And Oklahoma too. I've been to, I don't know if I said that. I've been all over. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and I think kind of the um, the assumption that it would be the same, um, you know, among a lot of a lot of uh, white people in the U.S. is, you know, kind of in part. Part of the process of like treating you know indigenous people as one big blob rather than yeah. you know a whole multifaceted you know uh, collection of nations and tribes. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, there's over there's 574. Could be more than that now. That's the last I heard. Federally recognized tribes. There's about 66 state recognized, and then some just completely unrecognized, which is a whole nother topic that's contested right now in Indian country as well. It's just every there's mm. just so much. Especially at the, I mean, there used to be so many more too prior to colonization, especially on the East Coast um, where people were hit super hard, super early. So it's just everywhere is so different.
1: Yeah. And then there's also
0: the great Coke versus Pepsi debate within Indian country. So that's just a little funny (laughs) tidbit.
1: Why don't you say a little bit about that? I don't know anything about that.
0: So it kind of depends. I have a friend who works on the Flathead reservation in Montana, which Flathead is, yeah, but they're Salish. Um, And they're Pepsi natives. So, but everywhere I've been in South Dakota, except Standing Rock, or maybe Standing Rock, I was only there for a day, so who knows, is Coke native. So it's like, which soda do you prefer? And then you've got the rare Dr. Pepper native, which is my brother.
1: <laughs> uh, that's that's really funny. <laughs> yeah, There's also, there's
0: long. just a lot of different things. I mean, I don't know if I ever made fry bread while you were at Simpson and I had some for you, but there's also differences in just like fry bread, which is also complicated. Everything's just super complicated. Mm. It's a lot to wrap your head around.
1: Yeah. No, no, yeah. I don't think I don't think you ever made fry bread, but um, you got to come out here and really, get some. I got to I, I, I do need to visit you and Evan at some point. I'd, I've never been to Rapid City, actually. So
0: it's honestly Maybe. really beautiful. I love the Black Hills. It's just a lot different than what I'm used to or living in Chicago for a year. It's a lot different than Chicago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's oh, about yeah, like if yeah. you can picture it's about the size of Waterloo for any Iowa listeners. So,
1: OK, OK. In gotcha. population,
0: in in the sheer size of the city, it's very large and spread out.
1: Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um. Well, uh, kind of zooming more more in on your, you know, your reporting specifically, and kind of, you know, what what you've seen at Pine Ridge, um, you know, in, in general, what are the kind of issues that are facing the reservation and the the communities on the reservation?
0: Right. So Pine Ridge, um, has a large issue with crime right now. Um, It's been going Mm -hmm. on for a long time, but most recently, a couple weeks back, I'm losing track of time at this point as the year winds down, but the president, Frank Starr, comes out, issued a statement of emergency pertaining to the crime on the reservation, which is domestic abuse, rape, murder, robbery, a bunch of things. So what happens is law enforcement in Indian country is super complicated. So the... Major Crimes Act dictates that the FBI has jurisdiction over all violent crimes committed on a reservation. But to add to that complication, tribal police really can't do anything about non-natives committing crimes on reservations. Um, they can really only control their own people. And it's not just like, so let's say I'm enrolled in Standing Rock and I commit a crime on Pine Ridge. I'm, it's, it's even complicated there, too. They're basically just responsible for patrolling their own citizens. But to make matters more complicated, as I mentioned earlier, Pine Ridge is about three million acres. And within that, there's nine separate districts. And so the district of Wombly is pretty far from Pine Ridge proper, which is the biggest city on Pine Ridge, about like 15,000 people. Um, so the police are headquartered in Pine Ridge. If they get a call in Wombly, it's about an hour, 40 minutes, maybe longer, maybe shorter away. So they've got to get Mm. all the way out there. And then there's also, so there's only 32 active police officers on Pine Ridge, but they're not all working at the same time. That would be a lot. So they have right now, I believe in the statement of emergency, the president said they have five officers working at one time. And those five are responsible for covering three million acres. So you can imagine how difficult that would be for them. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah. Now,
0: again, they really can only do things about their own people. So let's say you've got a bunch of non-natives or non-Pine uh, Ridge, non-Oglala people who are committing crimes on the reservation. They can't do a ton about that. They have to wait for other stuff. To, it's it's just a lot. It's really it's really hard to explain as well because it's so complicated. But. Um, hmm. Another issue, so on the Cheyenne River Reservation in Dupree, which Dupree is also just a headache of itself because of checkerboarding, which if people aren't familiar, in the Dawes Act era, land was broken up into allotments and given to individual Native families on that respective reservation. And then those families, after a certain amount of time, could sell their plot of land. So Dupree has been sold mostly to non-Native people, but it's still within the reservation. So what they had happened there was they had three people employed by the Dupree School District who were accused. One was accused of child abuse, and then two were accused of knowing the abuse was happening and not doing anything about it. So in okay. that instance, the tribal police had to pass over their findings because if they did find there was a crime committed, they can't do anything about it. Those are three non-native, non-Cheyenne River tribal members. Oh, wow. so they can be tried in civil court. So what happened is they were formally banished, or there's a more formal word for it, but they were banished from the reservation in tribal court. One of them owned private property on the reservation in Dupree, so she was allowed to stay. You can't banish her, she's a property owner. One of them, and I'm not going to name names because that's just like a whole other thing. I did write an article about this, um, but one of them, he contingent on his employment had a house across from the school but now that he's not employed he doesn't have the right to occupy that house anymore so he was still required to leave and so was the third individual so they are now suing the tribe for banishing them and it's just a whole headache and then on crow creek um moving over to the middle of the state they are having an issue where it's not just non-natives like people that aren't indigenous at all committing crimes. They have people coming from other reservations to deal drugs, deal weapons, firearms, um, basically just do a lot of stuff that the tribal police force isn't able to keep up with because on Crow Creek they have one police officer on duty at all times to cover their reservation. And I can't off the top of my head say how big it is. It's decent sized. And they have a total of three. They're severely understaffed. So they've been dealing with that and they have a vigilante police force and that's a whole nother thing. Um, it was really <laughs> fascinating when I got to go over the summer. Um, but there, it's just like everything to get back to Pine Ridge, what they're dealing with is... So you may have... People may have heard by chance the governor, Christy Nome say that there are cartels set up on Pine Ridge or there are cartels oh. set up in her reservations. And... What she means by that.
1: Yeah, what she means by that is
0: <laughs> it's it's not like if anybody's seen Ozark or Breaking Bad. It's not like a cartel cartel. It's not like Walter White is on Pine Ridge and he is dealing meth. <laughs> no. It there's smaller drug rings and it's not anything like her description was not entirely accurate. I feel confident saying that. Um it's mm-hmm. been contested by a lot of different tribal governments. Crow Creek had a um, press statement of their own that was basically ripping apart everything she said. I would encourage people to just Google Crow Creek response to Christina Cartels. You should get it there. But it's the drug issue there. The issue is when you get things like boarding schools or extreme trauma that Indigenous people have endured in the United States, a lot of people turn mm-hmm. to self medicating, and it's not just Native people. There are people it's just when you're traumatized you find ways to cope with it and for some people that is through drug use um so there is an issue with um meth use opiate use alcoholism on pine ridge but it's not exactly the way that it's been characterized in previous i i hate saying the media but in the media um i guess so there's just pine ridge they have an also an issue with missing indigenous people, not just women. Um, I did a story on a little boy who went missing two weekends ago oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. he was only three. He wandered off and he was gone for 14 hours. It went below freezing and somehow he lived. His uncle found him. It, it's a really cool story um, that I got to talk to his uncle about, but there's just a real issue with people going missing and it's really difficult for law enforcement to keep up with it. So what is really interesting is places like Thunder Valley, CDC and other places on Pine Ridge are making their own search teams and they're doing training so that they have emergency responders because they can't always Mm. rely on the police getting there in time. Like if you have someone go missing in Wombly, it's going to be unless a police officer just happens to be over there, it's going to be maybe an hour 45 before they can get there and a lot can happen in that time. And then just due to the sheer amount of calls that they're getting, they're not always able to respond to it. I did an article about domestic violence on uh, in mm-hmm. Native communities. And um, when I went to um, Pine, Ridge, Pine Ridge proper, the city, um, I spoke with Oglala Victim Services, and they said that they've seen a lot of people, the police, like, let's say there's, let say somebody's shooting up a gas station on the north part of the reservation. But then let's say there's a domestic violence incident on the West side. You're going to have to prioritize which one you're going to, unfortunately, because they're so short-staffed. And that's just the reality of it. And it's sad because that also people don't, you have to work up a lot of courage to call when you're being abused. And then to have no one respond is just, it's gutting. So Mm -hmm. there's honestly, I feel like I'm rambling, but it's just, it's so complicated and there's so much happening. Um, that yeah, it's just I mean, it's something <laughs> that i intend or plan on keeping up with for a while is just the way that crime is on reservations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, i feel like i got like a thousand questions to ask from from all that there. There's there's so much to unpack there. Um going to the the you know, discussion of like drug use, especially the um you know, turning to drug use, uh, you know, in in light of trauma and pain and you know, persecution or whatever. Um you know uh, what a you know I I have read you know kind of your reporting on the you know the the police situation in the reservations, but what is the situation of like uh, like the medical situation, like with hospitals or something like that? Because um, I I know that plays a huge role when talking about uh, drugs in general.
0: Yeah. So honestly, I haven't done as much with. Healthcare as I want. I want to do more on that. So I don't mm-hmm. have a completely solid answer What I will say though is I did find out that let's say there's like a government shutdown prior to this year IHS Indian Healthcare would just shut down they they can't pay their employees because they weren't determined to be a um, I, It's the word that they use during COVID but like indispensable or something like that um,
1: Yeah employees
0: yeah. so but also Just on top of that, if there's a government shutdown, the BIA doesn't function. So places like Crow Creek, there's no law enforcement because they can't pay them. I mean, you can continue to do your job, but you're not going to get paid. So why would you? Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, with healthcare, a lot of people, I mean, you have to be to use Indian health services. And I don't know if this is like, let's say you live on the reservation, you're non-native and it's like the closest hospital. I can't speak to that. But in general, um, if you're enrolled or you're the direct descendant of someone who is enrolled, you can use Indian health service and it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, I think PBS or somebody, somebody did a really good uh, documentary on issues with staffing. Um, And it took place on Pine Ridge actually, because they were having a hard time finding doctors. And a lot of the time, the people that in that documentary that they could find were not the best. And so there was allegations of abuse. There's allegations of sexual abuse with um, patients I, I honestly, I'll have to look it up later, but I cannot remember what that was called. But it was really interesting. But mm. um, yeah, I have not done as much with healthcare as I would like to. That's one of the areas sure. of coverage that I really think I've been lacking in.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, I I look forward to reading whatever you know you you do find when you start looking into that. Um. As uh, you know, uh, another thing, kind of from from what you were saying, that came to mind was, yeah. So so the inability to try. Uh, you know, legally go after um someone, uh, who's not you know not not uh a, a citizen of the reservation. I mean, that basically, to me anyway, seems to imply that there's basically very little legal recourse for dealing with like hate crimes. Yeah, is that kind of the the case? Okay. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, especially because I mean when. The Keystone XL pipeline was initially planned. This was something i had, that was brought up in an interview. There was um one of the Native women's sexual assault organizations was given specific funding to set up along the proposed route of the pipeline. um, and there's been a couple i need I can't remember off the top of my head there's been some really good reporting about the violence that comes along for Native women when there is a um something like an oil rig being set up or a pipeline construction or just something that brings in man camps, just anything that brings in man camps generally is associated mm-hmm. with a rise in missing and murdered indigenous women. And that's because, um, I really wish I could remember. I know, I know this was brought up in an interview I did have, so I can speak to it, but, um, they know that they can get away with stuff on the reservation. Um, if they're not native, yep. but also it's just, it, it the way that, The way that crimes are handled is just, it takes so long. I mean, I spoke to a mom who her daughter was killed in a hit and run on the Rosebud reservation and it's been Mm -hmm. a year and there's really no updates about it. And it's being handled by the FBI because it's a violent crime, but I mean, it, it takes a while.
1: Yeah. It, it seems like it's, it's, it's a really sluggish response. Um, I was going to say, um, you know, you you wrote a, a article. I don't I don't remember how long it was, but the the headline was specifically "Walking While Native," which I, I found like a really uh, just kind of depressing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sentence obviously, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's this this epidemic of um, you, you know, what, what do do you want to speak to that the 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 pedestrian death specifically? Yeah.
0: So that um, was a collaboration between myself and the Rapid City Journal Crime and Courts reporter Shalom Bergi. Um, it was really awesome to work with her, but she's been covering in Rapid City. And this this article's kind of niche to South Dakota in a way because she's been covering for a while. There was a 14 year old who I believe was Oglala Lakota. She was living in Rapid, and she was killed in a hit and run last year by um, this is in the public, Jordan Hare. And what happened was she and her cousin late at night were crossing the street. The truck waited for her cousin, and then I don't know. If he didn't see Nevea, what happened? He mm. hit her and killed her and left. And in South Dakota, the there are a lot of weird limits to what someone can be charged with if they commit, or if they kill someone in a hit-and-run. And there's no modification if they kill the individual. I believe it's a maximum of, of two years. And Hare was sentenced to one year, and um, I don't, I would need to look at it more, but he also sure. he cleaned his car after the case after the fact. I mean, he cleaned his car. He got it painted, um, and the mom was left. She found her daughter as she died, and so just recently mm. his trial happened, and I don't remember the specifics off the top of my head, but it's not what the community wanted. So the community did host a sit-in protest at the state uh, or the Pennington County Attorney General's office. Um, because they're dissatisfied with the way that things are. Because in South Dakota, the laws are so limited to what people who commit hit and runs can be charged with. Um, one of the mm-hmm. state government officials a couple of years ago actually killed someone in a hit and run. He claimed it was a deer. And uh, what was interesting is he had the man's glasses in his car. So,
1: Jesus um, Christ.
0: Yeah. But huh. I focus So shalom. Shalom really took the reins on the local issues because she's been covering that since the start. Um, I only started in June, but I covered, um, Michele Ironcloud, her death on the Rosebud reservation specifically in Parmalee. And she was hit and remarkably she was carrying her, um, young son and her son survived and he's, he's doing really good to this day. He's perfectly fine. Um, I mean, physically. And Mm -hmm. so. That, it's just, there's a lot of accidents on reservations. There's Im- there's not a lot of lighting. Um, a lot of these crashes happen late at night. And then there's just not a lot there. And I actually found out since writing that that there was another guy who was killed on Pine Ridge in 2021 whose mm-hmm. death isn't solved. So there's a few that remain. And then in general, a lot of people are hit. A lot of people are hit in rapid as well. Um, especially... Yeah on the outskirts of town. Um there was a woman who was hit and killed who was native by the airport this year. There was a young native man in Box Elder which is right outside of Rapid City. I think of it as a suburb. I'm not sure if they would, but he was hit and killed in Box Elder. It's just there's there's just a lot and it's it's really really sad.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I you, you combine that, you know, the the difficulty of um you know, trying uh, hit and run cases in uh, South Dakota as is. And then the complications of, of what it sounds like of, of, you know, trying anyone on a reservation who isn't a citizen of the reservation. It, it, yeah, it, uh,
0: yeah. Cause the FBI, like so if they were to find who killed Michelle, they would be sentenced at, uh fortunately they would be sentenced higher than they could be because okay. it would be handled by the government and not by a South Dakota, smaller regional court. Um, so that, I guess, is the bonus of having the FBI is that they can try them to the fullest extent of the law because they'll go by mm. federal law. They won't go by state law. So should they okay. find who killed Michelle, they will be charged uh, accordingly.
1: Well, uh, you know, moving a little bit, uh, you, you talked a bit about, uh, you know, the, the crime epidemic in the reservation. I, I specifically wanted to talk about the the lawsuit in the state of emergency. I don't know if we specifically got into that yet, but. Um, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, this this recent stuff. So what what do you what's your understanding of like what the lawsuit was last year? I know that was before you were reporting, but then and then the state of emergency now that's that's happened in the last few weeks.
0: Yeah, so my understanding, the state of emergency was basically to put pressure on the fact that nothing's really happened. Um, as of October not October, as of August, either fifth or fifteenth, it has a five in it. There was supposed to be a date set for a settlement to take place in the lawsuit that the Oglala Sioux Tribe, which I usually just call OST, that OST had filed against the United States government for a lack of law enforcement, inadequate law enforcement. So, that lawsuit specifically, the budget that the FBI funds, or not FBI, I've been talking too much about the FBI, the budget that (laughs) the BIA gives to law enforcement on Pine Ridge was set in the 1990s, I believe 99, and has not adjusted since. And so At that time, they had specific grants that provided for the funding of 120 officers. And they also were able to have um, a law enforcement center or precinct in the nine districts. So that means their response time is faster. The officer turnover rate is lower. They're not getting burnt out as fast. But now, Mm -hmm. over the years, they lost those grants. And so they're left with that base funding from 1999 and that has not been adjusted for inflation as i'm told. So the OST launches a lawsuit against the United States last year for um basically just all of the issues they've been having with law enforcement, they can't keep up, they don't have enough funding. They are requesting funding for 120 officers and that would help them get back on their feet is what they're saying. So fast forward to now I did an update in October, but in August, they were supposed to be setting a date for the possibility of a discussion of a settlement or something of that kind. It's really, really niche law talk, but it Mm -hmm. is now heading into December and there, I, I looked on PACER, which is a tool that you can use to keep track of lawsuits and stuff and there was nothing else filed since August. So a few weeks ago. I I think this is just to put pressure on it. The OST launches this um, state of emergency proclamation, and they've done this before. And so this basically raises awareness to the issues they're facing, and it's supposed to trigger a response from the United States. Um, For example, last year, they had an extreme winter weather emergency um, Darsha Dodge from the rapid city journal did some really great reporting on this where people were locked inside their home for an extended period of time because of the snow and they didn't have the infrastructure mm-hmm. to plow. They didn't have the infrastructure to keep up with it. So they were left burning their own clothing. So they oh my God. launched a state of emergency where FEMA is supposed to provide them funding. But during the state of emergency, um, the president, said that they did not get all of the resources they spent back in funding. They, the, it just, it didn't go the way they had hoped. So these um, proclamations are just a way for them to really funnel communication, I believe to up through the department of the interior and help bring awareness to what's going on.
1: Sure. Sure. And so uh, it it seems like, I mean, you know, from policing to other stuff, it's, it's it's a lack of funding issue. Like the yeah. the Bureau of Indian Affairs is not, um, you know, receiving enough money to have enough money to go to these reservations to have basic things like, uh, you know, getting somebody out of a out of a blizzard. You know, mm-hmm. things things that feel like a basic right. Um,
0: yeah, because a lot of these houses on Pine Ridge, they have wood burning furnaces. Um, okay. They're not. They're not really. They don't really have centralized heat. Um. They're Because of how poor the reservation is, um, the housing situation is pretty rough. There's a lack of housing in general, and then a lot of these houses are pretty old. They're mostly trailers. Some of them are pretty banged up, especially in certain parts. And so when these people were trapped in their homes, there's no way to get firewood. So that's why they were having to burn their clothing.
1: Jesus. Wow. Um, Yeah. So moving maybe to a, to a different subject here but it'll it will relate um you've also been doing some reporting on on the Indian collective which uh quick quickly want to yeah something you pointed out to me before we started recording um as you know it's spelled N D N but it's pronounced Indian collective and I I spent like the first like hour before you know hour before we started recording trying to figure out what you know N D N stood for um until I heard you pronounce it and I just realized it was a pun that I wasn't getting
0: Uh. (laughs) yeah it's just it's just like a little like people instead of saying i'm an indian they say on like online it'll be like i'm an indian like i'm an indian
1: yeah indian i see uh but yeah so you've been reporting on them a little bit and and they're i I believe it was in september that they went to washington dc um yeah they they were for leonard
0: pelletier's um birthday they were protesting for his release um a lot of people consider him to be the longest serving u.s political prisoner he was arrested after the killing of two fbi agents um in wounded knee on pine ridge in the late 70s or early 70s somewhere in 1970s oh, wow. and um a lot of the information is like it's it's that's a whole thing on its own that we could do an entire episode on but Basically, um, he's super old. He's an elder. He is his health is declining. He has diabetes. He had COVID. And from mm. COVID, he has long-term effects. So um they're not asking for him to be pardoned. They're asking for him to be granted clemency because that's not it's it's just so that he can go home and live out his final days. So that's why. So the Indian Collective is a mm. nonprofit organization that helps. Native tribes, native individuals. It's uh, the CEO is Nick Tilson, who has been previously involved with Thunder Valley CDC, and he is from Pine Ridge, and he's done he's done a lot of work. Um, but they are a nonprofit that they provide money to tribes, they provide resources. They're working on getting um, tiny houses for homeless individuals, ex- individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, they're basically just a nonprofit, but. Tilson, his family has always been involved in the fight to get Pelletier out of maximum security prison. And so this is something personal to him. So he and the Indian collective hmm. went to DC to protest and, um, some people were arrested there. I'm not entirely sure what happened, but, um, there were some issues.
1: There were some arrests. Okay. Um, yeah. And I guess maybe, maybe how does, and, uh, you know, Indian collective kind of, um, connect to the broader kind of like land back movement that I, I think has been kind of returning I mean the, the land back movement goes back obviously centuries ever since uh ever since the land was stolen in the first place but um but you know in, in the last I feel a few last few years there's been a lot um kind of a return of that conversation more do you want to yeah. uh, speak a little bit to the land back movement what it means and then where Indian Collective fits into all that
0: yeah, so I think the I think it's safe to say that the Indian collective really popularized Land Back, and that is in their fight to regain land in the Black Hills. Land back is just a way of getting back I mean, everybody knows that the US was not just like discovered. So that's that's yeah. But basically, um the whole Black Hills is a whole issue in and of itself because the Lakota and other tribes never gave it up. It was taken, and it, they were supposed to maintain it. But when gold was found there, it, it was all over. So the what used to be the Great Sioux Reservation, which included the Black Hills, was divided up. Um, they still had a ton of land, then that got taken away, then they have what the reservations are today. And then within those reservations, the land got bought up because, you know, allotments. So actually, when I was on Standing Rock, um, there was discussions about just... They're having a lot of tribes are having to buy back those parcels of land that were sold. But then there's a whole other process from turning it into fee lands, into trust lands, because when they buy those lands back, they have to pay taxes on them until they're placed into federal right. trust. Um, but basically in a nutshell, land back is just a movement to reclaim lands that were taken. A lot of these that you're seeing being given back usually are sacred sites. In the late 2010s, um Peshla, which is in the Black Hills, was returned to Um, Several Lakota tribes, and um, that is a sacred site for them. Um, And it's just like in the middle of the Black Hills. So that was that was a small victory. Um, It was a big victory actually. Um, Yeah. And then other places around the U.S., you're seeing these small or even sometimes sizable chunks of land, sometimes donated by private landowners. I mean, some random family in Iowa donated their property to the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. It's nine hours away, but it's the thought that counts. So I mean, there's some people that are giving land back, which cool. And then the government is also giving land back because um, Deb Holland is a citizen of the Navajo Nation, the Secretary of the Department of the Interior. So I believe I don't recall, and I could be wrong. I don't recall seeing this happening before Holland was in office. Um, mm-hmm. But for example, like my the Brother Town Reservation, the Brother Town got moved a lot. Got moved from. Some got moved from New Jersey because there was a reservation there. Some got moved from New York, got forced to Wisconsin um, into the land that was already part of somebody else's reservation. Then they were like, go to Oklahoma or else. And they're like, we don't want to go to Oklahoma. So then they're like, okay, no more land for you. So they recently, let's say, let's say somebody donates land to the brother town so we can have like a farm. That's land back. So it can be small. It can be large. I did a story The Oglala and Cheyenne River Sioux Tribes are working to get back the actual killing fields of the Wounded Knee Massacre, which is crazy to think about. They are in the reservation, Mm. but they were not owned by the tribes, so the tribes had to buy it and then they're having to go to the United States to say, we have these lands. It's It's a really complicated process, but Land Back in a Nutshell is just a movement to reclaim lands that were once taken. You'll also hear language back, which is a movement to reclaim languages. Um, culture back, a movement mm-hmm. to reclaim cultures. It's it's just um, it's a larger movement that was, I'd say, popularized by the Indian collective. I think I think people first heard of it when they blocked President, former President Donald Trump, from going to the um, fireworks uh, at Mount Rushmore. Um, I was about was, to
1: bring this up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: There was a protest there, <laughs> and then the Indian collective. A few people scaled the uh there's a big grain mill in rapid city they scaled it and put a huge land back flag on there i think that's when people started hearing of this i i think i think that's when it became popularized i i think trend.
1: you're right because because i i mean i i'd heard the phrase before then but i do recall like i i and especially i mean this was this was 2020 this was a really yeah, political it was a year. it was a, a very heated year and um you know, a year of mass protest, and you know, I I feel like that was when, you know, I really I really saw it as like a mili- you know, like a I don't want to say militant because that that might might have a negative connotation, but a real like thing with with some direction here, like might actually be gaining some steam, and I, I mm-hmm.
0: it
1: it is cool to see that that's that's. Um, you know, it is growing in popularity is it is starting to be taken seriously.
0: Yeah. Cause and, Mount Rushmore itself was the seven grandfathers, which was a sacred site to the Lakota. And then the United States purposely turned that into Mount Rushmore. I think that's safe to say, I don't think that's my opinion. Um,
1: no, no, so, I think that's at this point, a matter of historical record.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I would say so. Yeah. I'm trying to dance along that line as a reporter. Um, but sure, yeah, yeah. So that was part of it. Is they would very much so like that back, please and thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I hope, I hope that that you know some some progress gets made on that. I, um, I don't know. I, I there was a pretty pretty strong negative reaction, I recall, to the Mount Rushmore stuff. But oh yeah, uh, there um, will always I mean, be, of course, there because that's like be. the
0: idealized American <laughs> monument. That people think of. I mean, people come from other countries to go there. People, even like when I went there, I just was like, I might as well just go. There were, there were cars with plates from native nations. So I was like, oh, chill. Okay. Mm. So, I mean, people go there. It's, it's iconic. Um, But it was was made out of a historic site for the Lakota or the greater.
1: If you're not familiar with that history, it kind of feels like, like a group out of nowhere, just going, oh, we want the statue of Liberty now.
0: Yeah. You know, like
1: that's, that's, I think, how your, your average, you know,
0: (laughs) American
1: sees it. And then that's part of, part of what Well, because then you
0: had the whole, when Ben and Jerry's was like, give back Matt Rushmore and then people were exploding mentally.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe speaking back to the, the Land Back stuff, it's, you know, I, I think, I, I think that it's good to see that some of these victories, like, and, and from my understanding of it, a lot of Land Back is just, frankly just trying to make the us follow treaties that it signed like
0: yeah already. treaties especially here are a huge thing you hear people talk about because um i mean the this part of south dakota they never technically gave it up and then with the black hills there was that there's that bank account that people like to talk about where the lakota tribes were given money in exchange but they don't want it because that means they give the hills up and that's just like that's that's like another big thing is they don't want the money they want the land because they don't care about the money they care about the land that's where their ancestors were that's where their culture that's where they like their the the um i mean wind cave national monument or national park that's the that's part of the creation story for the lakota and uh they don't i mean i I don't know if they co-manage it with the park but it's not a part of their land anymore it was in the it was supposed to be in the treaty of 1851 and the treaty of 1868 both were fort laramie treaties and uh mm-hmm. they they don't have it because gold
1: yep uh, yeah because yeah you're saying this is, is a lot of the black hills this is kind of the situation where mm-hmm. I, I i don't even recall which which article it was that you wrote but uh one where i was just like kind of jaw dropped at how many treaties were violated that, oh, that might have been the it?
0: initial Oglala lawsuit one because I I like go into yeah. it there.
1: Yeah, that that I think it is. Yeah, because it, yeah, it was the it was about the bad men clause. Yeah, the um, bad men
0: clause where the United States is supposed to protect them from bad men or men that mm-hmm. wish to do them harm, and that's part of their yeah. treaties, and it's not there's they're arguing that that's not being upheld
1: right and that's that's what's relating to the state of emergency and stuff here is is that that the treaty because yeah you listed you know i wrote it down was treaties in 1825 1851 1868 and 1877 all getting
0: like violated like yeah because those all state that like they united states guarantees protection to these tribes from bad men and then this isn't even exclusive to South Dakota. The end of that article has a whole tangent about like um Montana mm-hmm. as well and then I didn't even get into the Navajo Nation or there there it's this is something that's not just seen in the South Dakota region.
1: Yeah, yeah. I you know that was part of why like, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you specifically about Pine Ridge, but it's because although you can't necessarily universe you can't universalize about like indigenous experiences, different tribes or whatever you can kind of universalize about how the U S treats indigenous people. Yeah. Uh, Because (laughs) you know, the, the U S government has consistently signed treaties and refused to follow them. Yeah. Um, That's
0: across the board.
1: That's across the board. And I I think that is also a matter of historical record at this point. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So another, one other thing I wanted to bring up was some of the reporting you did on the Rapid City Indian Boarding School and kind mm-hmm. of the the history that's slowly getting uncovered there. Um, do, do you want to speak a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So the Rapid City Boarding School is a lot of the boarding schools that people hear about are Catholic, but it was a government run government sanctioned school. Um, It's similar to the most infamous boarding school, I would say most infamous, the Carlisle boarding school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So Mm -hmm. what it was, was an off-reservation boarding school for Native children to be taken to. The Rapid City boarding school was supposed to be middle school aged, but when I went through the records and I spoke with the researchers, you ended up seeing kids from infancy to 19 years old. Um, That's just who ended up being there. And then... Mm -hmm. It also wasn't just local kids which is another common misconception. Um, There were kids as far as Wisconsin, Minnesota, Montana, North Dakota, Mm -hmm. um, even Nebraska but I guess Nebraska is a bit closer but nevertheless um, it was it was kids from all over. A a great chunk of kids were from uh, Montana and a lot of these kids never came home. Uh, There were two infants that died. There's there's pretty much no record about the infants, which is something that the researchers are hoping to be able to look into. And um there were there are so far fifty about fifty recorded deaths, and there the researchers are suspect suspect that there are more. So the school ran until the around the nineteen forties. It started to dwindle by that point in popularity, because this is when boarding schools in general kind of aside from reservation schools were kind of declining in popularity or they were also shifting as we know it the boarding school when it first started in the late 1800s was a lot different from when it ended in around the tuberculosis era that's why it ended is because it became well first it was for the civil conservation corps for a couple years and then it was a tuberculosis clinic and then it was an indian health services clinic and now it's demolished um but there is an indian health service clinic there Anyway, so the kids, the kids, a lot of them died because of circumstances caused by the school. And for example, one of the researchers, Kibby Brown, she spoke about one of her ancestors who he, the kids were only being fed like brown mush and bread, I believe is what she was saying. And so they were working in the farm. He stuck a potato in his pocket. And then he went down to the basement because he was in charge of managing the boiler room, which he's, he's a small child managing the boiler room with, with a grown yeah, man. Yeah, Jesus. But he's he's managing the boiler room as his task because what this school was, I should probably get into that. What the school was, was half work, half school. So half of the kid's day would be spent working and half would be spent schooling. And the model for this was, there's an infamous quote, um, kill the Indian, save the man. So basically yeah. what they're doing is these kids are being... Trained, air quotes, to lead a normal white life, if that makes sense. So they get to the school, their hair's cut. Mm -hmm. They get to the school, they can't speak their language anymore. A lot of these kids didn't speak English before, and they have—they're treated like they're in the military. A lot of them go on to join the military after this, but they're treated like they're in the military. So, anyway, they're given these jobs. So he was tending to the garden. He sticks a potato in his pocket. He goes down to the boiler room and he tries to cook it. He's a little kid. He doesn't know this is going to make it explode, but it does. He is killed in the explosion. The One of the workers is injured but survives. But a lot of the cases were similar to this or they were just general illness because the kids, the kids weren't receiving the same treatment that they would if they were white children and they were sick. So a lot of them died right, from pneumonia. Right. A lot of them died from other treatable illnesses. And this is also the late 1800s. So there's not a ton of treatment, but they're not getting the best treatment they could be. So... A lot of the descendants today live in Ra- the Rapid City area. Rapid City is about, to put it into context, the reason I report so much on Pine Ridge is because it's the closest. The The border of Pine Ridge is about a half an hour. Pine Ridge, the city of Pine Ridge or the village of Pine Ridge is an hour 30. So it's not that far. So I can I can do that sure. every day. So that's why I focus on them the most. But um, that child in particular, he was Oglala. So a lot of these kids, once they leave the school, if they survive, they're traumatized. Um, and at towards the end kibby Kibby had relatives that went that said it got better. But the boarding schools, this isn't where they stopped. Um, I was kind of I didn't realize this, but when I was interviewing an elder who he had relatives that went to the boarding school who died escaping, he went to boarding school himself. so i was I was sitting there and I was talking to a boarding school survivor, and that was something that really stuck with me because yeah. um some of these schools. On the reservations, main, like continued as boarding schools into around the 80s or the 60s, 70s. That's when they started to phase out. I think, I think that one in particular he went to stopped being a boarding school around the 80s. It's still a school, but it's not a boarding school anymore, uh, and it's seen mm-hmm. a lot of reforms. That's the Red Cloud Indian School. It's now the uh, Mapialuta School because that's the Lakota name for Red Cloud. Um, So it's just boarding schools as a whole. I think people are starting to learn more about it. there's this trend where people will, they'll hear about indigenous issues. They'll think about it for a little while. Like the Kamloops school brought a lot of international attention to boarding schools, and I am grateful for the reporting that was done on that because I think that is when people started paying attention. Um, to to
1: clarify, was it, was that the case in Canada or is that something else? And in
0: Canada, um, some people will tell you Canada was worse. Some people will say it's about the same, but Canada had a very large amount of boarding schools and a lot of them were religion based. Um, But the boarding schools are not new. Um, I did have relatives who, so some Ivy league schools on the East coast, Harvard, Dartmouth, they used to be boarding schools. Um, Dartmouth was the more Indian day school. And I did have uh, ancestors who went there from my brother town family. And so This has been going on for a long, long time since the 1700s um, and it just kind of it got big I would say when Carlisle was created in the mid to late 1800s um, because the government kind of got involved and they thought that this was going to be the way to save people but you still see the remnants of it today because there's still people who um, are boarding school survivors who are living their lives and even their descendants, Mm -hmm. it affects it it kind of has like a A trickle-down effect in a way through intergenerational trauma because some people you'll hear a lot and when i was in standing rock yesterday in their tribal council they had some quotes on the walls and one of them was about how um their grandmother would have them hide in the root cellar because she was so afraid that the government was going to come and take the kids to school and she'd never see them again so um Mm -hmm. it's just it's trauma that really stuck with people and so even yeah. though the boarding school in Rapid isn't up anymore, the only thing that remains is the barn and then uh something else. But um it's it remains in people's memory, whether they know it or not.
1: One one detail, um, and it was actually why I was gonna bring up the the cases in Canada, um, you know, one thing one detail from your your reporting on this that that honestly just made me nauseous reading was was um the um, them being unable to do ground-piercing like scans of of mm-hmm. this specific residential school, so we we don't know if it's if it's going to you know if it would have been another a similar situation. Um, and you know, there's there's all these unmarked graves that have been found. Um, yeah, yeah. So so you know that that issue you know when that was coming out in Canada um, was you know I, I think incredibly harrowing to anyone who was following it, but. Yeah, you know, th- this didn't just happen in Canada. Obviously, like you know, yeah, it if, happened if all over. Yeah,
0: I mean, when you look at records from the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania, there were kids who were being taken from Puerto Rico. There were kids who were there from Alaska. Like they were, they were taking kids from everywhere, all the U.S. colonies. So this, mm, this likely, is something that affects, likely all like, these
1: kids not not even speaking the same language. Like obviously mm-hmm. they were they were being forced to learn English, but like yeah, you know, treating them all like they're the same same thing just because they're indigenous and not from mm-hmm. you know vastly different regions. Oh, man, sorry, sorry to bring up su- such heavy history
0: <laughs> oh, no, <let's laughs> say, I mean it's, it's part of the job and that's um right. it's something that I've kind of had to this is the job I want to do this is the job that I'm passionate about, but it, it is hard, especially doing the boarding school article. it just made me think a lot
1: mm-hmm. yeah, so you know you talked a bit to the researchers about what's kind of being done to obviously there's there's no way you can make up for the lives that were lost and the trauma that was you know done this, but the, you know not done in the um in the the boarding schools. but you know th- there's been an attempt to, you know like learn the names of of um people who died and you know people who were killed. Um, you know, like what what what's being done, I guess to to address this historical legacy and and what more could be done?
0: Yeah, so I think just bringing awareness to it is a big part because um, a lot of people think that Native trauma is something of the past, but it's not. I mean, like, I, like we've said with the issues we discussed on Pine Ridge specifically, there's still issues going on today. I mean, um, I'm working on a story on an update of the Dakota Access Pipeline right now. Um, these are some big current topics, but also the trauma of boarding school has lingered. It's affected... Languages have died. Um, People, family bonds have been severed. And like you said, I don't know if there is a way to mitigate that, but what we can do is we can educate ourselves on it. Um, What's cool is the Rapid City Indian Boarding School Memorial in particular is going to be built sometime in the near future. They got, um, the organizers have a parcel of land that they're going to build a monument on where there will be one boulder for each child that is recorded to have died and they'll be spread out in a way that if they find more children or if they recover names they, those can be added and there's also going to be a space for ceremony a space for um, different types of healing ceremonies and then there's also going to be spaces for education and um, I think another good way is to just support organizations that are doing this work um, like a lot of this is done through donation and um, a lot of this is done through volunteers. Most of the people that work on the boarding school memorial are volunteers. I mean, um, Kibby Brown, who I, I mentioned her ancestor, um, she just does this as a volunteer. She works, um, she has a different job that she does. So this is just something she did because it was important to her. So I think even as an ally, you can help with this research. Um, if you have research skills, that could be good, too, because it's it's hard. You have to dig through a lot of different documents. These documents in particular were stored in Kansas City, so the researchers had to, if they weren't mm. digitized, they had to go out there. They had an external group, pardon me, that also helped with that, which was good, but I think I think the first step is really just educating yourself because a lot of people, especially this is something I hear in Rapids sometimes where people will be like, oh, all well, these Indians, they just want to complain. They just want to dwell on the past. And it's like, this isn't the past. This affected the way that people parented. This affected the way that people function in their day-to-day lives. They might not even know why they do the certain things they do. They might not know why they why they hide their kids. They might not know why they're like scared. But this is this is something that remains today. It doesn't just go away because the school's gone.
1: Yeah, I um actually uh, the last last guest I had on on Fruitless um, you know, s- speaking about the Israel-Palestine conflict, but um he, he made a comment that has been kind of fucking with me for the last, you know, few weeks or whatever. Where, you know, he, he was talking in in general about indigenous issues in relation to it, and he he asked, "Well, how do we refer to Native Americans?" It's it's often in the past tense, mm-hmm. even though that's not true. You know what I mean? Like yeah. no, that's not the case. And I I think that's um I don't know that that's that's kind of the haunting aspect of this is yeah, like a lot of people in Rapid City will just be like, "Well, this is." this is an issue from the past this is old trauma but it's it's still alive and part of i mean part of why it's it's as bad as it is is by acting like this is a past tense issue and not something Mm -hmm. you know land back is a a a very alive movement that's trying to do things the memorial the research this stuff is like active real material stuff that is is happening in the present you know Mm -hmm. yeah uh you know, and it's okay if you you can't think of them now. Um, but uh, if there are any, you know, charities or anything that you would suggest people, you know, donate to if they want to help uh, any of the stuff we've talked about uh, in this episode, if you could shoot those my way, I would put them in the show notes or whatever. Oh yeah, do um, that. And yeah, yeah. I I think I think this is probably pretty close. Is, is there anything specifically you want to talk about um, before we kind of wrap up here?
0: I don't think so. Um i can't think of anything I'm, um, I'm trying i know i i know i have stuff but
1: I don't know. I, it, it'll be the instant i stop recording and i you know i go and like eat some dinner or something i'll be like oh yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> sure,
0: well, i was gonna not. say um i don't know when this is coming out but my dapple story will be out on saturday
1: my my goal is to have this out literally like tomorrow okay cool so yeah, yeah hopefully that should be that should be out by then um yeah. Or it will not be out by then, but we'll it will be coming out. So keep an eye out for that. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll link like your, uh, your socials and stuff. Um, so, you know, your Twitter and stuff. So people can uh, keep an eye on you, your reporting here. Cause I, I think you're doing really cool stuff. And
0: thank you. Uh, Actually, yeah. I got asked to talk at Simpson today, but oh, just in you? like, but just in like a media class. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. But I mean, I was like, dang, <laughs>
1: that's cool yeah i i I think you're doing you're doing really cool stuff so thank you um it's been well it's good to good to kind of catch up here a little bit and yeah um, for sure yeah
0: i'm I'm jealous Uh, that i didn't get to have coffee with you and evan
1: i know yeah that was fun (laughs)
0: good
1: yeah next time next time you guys are in town let me know um i'll go ahead and say thank you everybody for listening to fruitless uh don't forget to check out amelia schaefer's work um yeah i think that's it Thanks so much for, for joining.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank
1: you so much for listening to Fruitless. Uh, the show is, of course, brought to you by our lovely patrons, who include Gavin Aronson, Stephen Atkinson, The Worst of All Possible Worlds, Moss, Kyle Gannis, Thomas C., James R., Leo Zachary Dickinson, and, of course, Chris Barker. We could not do this without you. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and also uh, check out the Patreon for more uh, wonderful content. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next month.
0: Well, because then you had the whole what Ben and Jerry's was like, give back Matt Rushmore and then people were exploding mentally. <laughs> All right,
1: I th- I could never, I, I always forget at this, like, you know, you get a couple months out of those culture war things, you forget they even happened. Yeah. Well, cuz the M&M was that was a
0: whole thing too.
1: <laughs> it's so I think that was right on so the scale of it. It's
0: that so Mombar silly that back. that's
1: that's uh <laughs> that's how that's how it feels like the political discourse happens anymore is through like arguing about skittles or something it's <laughs>
0: the MM can't be <laughs> sexy that's the discourse
1: yeah it's the discourse now yeah ben I'm and just, jerry's I'm said like, mean what things would my life about... be like
0: if that's the reporting i was doing the eminem's not sexy anymore versus the eminem is sexy <laughs> like my life would be so much simpler
1: yeah you think so <laughs>
0: maybe well if all you did was monitor if the eminem is sexy or not
1: Okay, well that'd be know. easy, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was gonna say, I mean, I I do know people who do like tech journalism where they follow the culture war stuff, and they end up like, yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty rough job. Well, it sounds like, even, but um, if it was just Janet, checking in with the USA M&M, Today, Gannett
0: has like a new position for a Taylor Swift reporter. Like, my whole life would be Taylor Swift. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do it, but it would be so much easier because I wouldn't be constantly like, like I'm doing these stories sometimes. And it's like, I have to take a step back because it's just, it's, it's so sad.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it I was covering sounds Peter like you
0: Swift, like, is she still with the football man or is she not?
1: See, that'd be great. Yeah.
0: I don't want to get the Swifties on you though.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how the odd live culture war stuff always ends up playing out. You, you don't want them on you. People, people get mad. Um, but no, I mean we're talking about the the specific you know issues. Um, that, that you're I, I forget what I was gonna say. There. <laughs> gonna cut myself saying that out. Um, <laughs> got it. Getting distracted by the sexy Eminem. Uh, the sexy
0: Eminem is yeah. That is one of my favorite things of 2023. Was that this year? or Was that last year? I think that
1: might have been last year. Yeah. Yeah. Eminem got um, our boots back. Yeah cuz I I uh, I went to the M&M store at the Mall of America earlier this year and I know that it was before then because Kelly kept making a joke about like where's the sexy grade bitch I'm looking for her. <laughs> <laughs> anyway I um... I'm gonna cut all this and then stick it at the very end of the episode. If someone okay. listens after the music,
0: That works. that works. <laughs> Honestly, I think this part's gold. Get me on an episode where I... I just talk about top ten like Fox News moments. <laughs> I would really enjoy that.
1: Honestly, that would be that would be pretty great. Um...
0: <laughs> I won't distract
1: you anymore. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good.